Let's go to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. And uh, we are a couple weeks now into a teaching series on Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And I uh, had more than an hour and a half to prepare for this morning, so I'm feeling a little bit better than last week. But um, if you don't know, Ken's over in Australia this week, uh, taking part in the Justice Conference Australia, which is just crazy. This uh, thing that started here in, in this church several years ago is now happening um, on several continents, and so really cool. And uh, so we're going to dive uh, into, the, into the book of Philippians, and... Paul, just to remind you, is in prison, most likely imprisoned in Rome, and he's basically considered an enemy of the state because he goes around telling people that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And it's a threat to the empire, a threat to the establishment, and they are doing whatever they can to keep him out of the game. And so they've locked him up, and uh, the church in Philippi, Paul's brothers and sisters, are worried about him. And so they have uh, sent one of the brothers, Epaphroditus, along to kind of check in on Paul and to bring him some supplies and just kind of spread the love a little bit. And now Paul, in about the year 60 or so, has sent this letter back with Epaphroditus to the church in Philippi. And he's essentially thanking them for their care and concern and doing what he can in this letter to encourage them and to share about the ways that he is experiencing um, the joy of Jesus, even in a really kind of miserable circumstance. And the crazy thing is Paul doesn't actually know what's going to happen. He's kind of in this holding tank where he's sort of awaiting trial and he, he doesn't yet know what the authorities are going to decide to do with him he may end up spending the rest of his life in this little jail cell, or he may get released. He's not really sure yet. And so he's writing this from a place of uncertainty. And the first verse that we'll look at in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, right in the middle, kind of where there's a paragraph break, he says, yes, I will continue to rejoice. Okay, so this theme of joy or rejoicing shows up over and over in this letter. It's kind of one of the main ideas that Paul's trying to convey, just how much joy he's experiencing. And not only from prison, but from this place of uncertainty. So I don't know about you, but when I'm in a place of uncertainty where the kind of the next thing is yet to be determined, that's the place where I'm least likely to experience joy and contentment. I think once I get past this season or this deadline or whatever it is, then I, I feel like maybe there's going to be joy on the other side, right? But Paul's writing from prison without knowing what's going to happen next. And he says, yes, I will continue to rejoice. Okay, it's an amazing thing. So let's read uh, starting in verse 19 and we'll go through 26. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. 
I desire to, be, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Okay, so in verse 19, Paul begins kind of again this idea that I'm, I'm rejoicing, I'm confident, I'm content in the Lord. And he says that what has happened to me at the end of the verse will turn out for my deliverance. So if you know Paul's story, when he says what has happened to me, that's a really kind of succinct way of describing some of the worst things that can happen to a person, right? And primarily because of his faith and commitment to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, he has been persecuted, he's been beaten, he's been, been imprisoned, he's been shipwrecked, he's gone hungry, he's gone homeless. And his story is found all throughout the New Testament. Like, he sums all of that up, all these t- terrible things. He says, what has happened to me will actually serve for my deliverance. And so here, here's just a quick little flow of how Paul tells his story and then kind of offers it to his readers. Over and over again, he looks at the bad things, the unpleasant things, the undesirable things that have happened to him, and he receives them with gratitude because he believes that God lets things happen to us so that things can happen in us, so that things can happen through us. You see that flow in Paul's writing and in his life? He embraces the suffering because he knows that in those places of of despair and uncertainty and imprisonment, that's where he is open to the work of God, forming Jesus in him more fully. And so as a result of the things that have happened to him, Paul writes as this man who you could argue probably knows and loves and understands the heart of Jesus better than any human who's ever lived. He has been formed deeply by Christ as a result of the things that have happened to him. So things happened to him so that things could happen in him. And he says, and it doesn't stop there, because of what Christ has done in me, Jesus has done all these things through me. So last week we looked briefly at some of the ways that the gospel had advanced, that the whole prison guard knew that Paul was in chains for Christ and that brothers and sisters, the church, had been encouraged and emboldened to practice and proclaim their faith in Christ um, more vibrantly. And so that's, that's kind of the general flow of Paul's ministry and the way that he receives suffering as grace from God, as crazy as that sounds, because he's learned that in those, in those miserable places that Christ is near and he finds himself being formed to become like Christ so that God can use him in the world. And I know that's a pattern that I've seen God work out in my life. I know many of you can probably relate as well that the disappointments, the letdowns, the hard times, the seasons of loss and uncertainty, the things that happen to us, God uses them to do things in us, to form a deeper love, a stronger faith. And it doesn't stop there. We're not just a cul-de-sac of God's blessing, but he wants to actually turn us into vessels that bring his love and blessing to the world. And so that's kind of the flow that Paul's, Paul's working with. And... <clears throat> To unpack a little bit deeper this morning, we're going to focus on that middle step of the things that happen in Paul. 
the experience that he has of Christ, writing from this place in prison, and Paul is just kind of in this section, he's talking about that relationship that he's enjoying with Jesus and talking about how Jesus has changed his life completely, changed the way he sees himself, sees others, sees the mission of God in the world, and he's inviting the church at Philippi to, to follow him in that faith, to follow him in that experience of Christ. And so all of it is kind of summed up in this really well-known verse in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In the original language, there's no verb. So he says, to live, Christ. To die, gain. Paul's saying, that's my reality. That's what I'm experiencing here in prison. And he writes to the church in Philippi, and I long for you to have the same. What does it mean when he says, to live Christ. Read from Gerald Hawthorne. For Paul, life is summed up in Christ. Life is filled up with, occupied with Christ. In the sense that everything Paul does, trusts, loves, hopes, obeys, preaches, follows, and so, so on, is inspired by Christ, is done for Christ. Christ and Christ alone gives inspiration, direction, meaning, and purpose to his existence. Paul views his life in time as totally determined and controlled and, and controlled his own love for and commitment to Christ. Overpowered by Christ on the Damascus road and overwhelmed by his majesty and love and goodness and forgiveness, Paul can see no reason for being except to be for Christ. So if you know Paul's biography, you'll remember that before Jesus got a hold of him, he was essentially an anti-Christian terrorist, right? And we have examples of that in our world today. Paul was what we would consider the enemy, right? He's the worst. He's persecuting and killing followers of Jesus. And then, as we know on the Damascus Road, Jesus shows up, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he gives Saul this whole new life, this whole new identity, and he invites Saul into his heart, into his mission, and changes him forever. And now Paul, many years later, after giving his life for this gospel, is reflecting on the very nature of his existence. And he says, essentially, life is Jesus. That's all there is to it. And followers of Jesus have found inspiration in these words of Paul for centuries. Um, not just the kind of inspiration that like, gets you fired up, but like the kind of inspiration that would cause you to lay down your life for Christ and his gospel. Ignatius, one of the early church fathers, he was actually a bishop of the original church in Antioch. In the second century, the story goes that he was taken in chains as a captive of the state from Syria to Rome. And the church in Antioch had been praying for his deliverance that he would somehow be released by the state. And Ignatius told him, stop praying that. I don't want to be let go. I don't want to be released from my chains for Christ. He embraced the opportunity to suffer for Jesus. He said this, let fire and the cross, let the company of wild beasts, 
Let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, if only I may gain Christ Jesus. I don't want to get out of prison. I don't want to get out off of death row. I want to suffer if that means that I can gain Christ. These are radical statements, aren't they? And some of us would say, man, that actually feels, it's not inspirational. That feels a little unhealthy. <laughs> it feels a little imbalanced, <laughs> you know? There's a place in, in a couple chapters over in Philippians 3, verse 8, where Paul unpacks this a, a little bit more in depth for us. And um, let's see if I can find it for you. Here's the great thing. Ken's actually going to preach this passage in a few weeks, but he's gone. So I'm going to fast forward and jump in, and uh, hopefully it doesn't mess him up. But he says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So I just want to emphasize over and over this commitment of Paul and other followers of Jesus that have come after this single desire, this one-item bucket list. All I want is to know Jesus, to be with him, to be like him, to experience the blessing of his presence, the power of his spirit. Paul would say, I count everything else garbage compared to knowing him, compared to gaining Christ. And Paul in that section talks about all of the things that he once had that would be considered prized in this world. His esteem, his reputation, his education, his place of, of power and importance in the society at that time. All these things that people then and now give their whole life to pursue. The things that they think will bring them meaning and significance and joy. Paul says all of that stuff, all the things that humans want most, he says, I consider it all garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. The original language actually helps us understand Paul's, uh, Paul's point even deeper. That word garbage, teach you a little bit of Greek, is the word scubula. Bible college students love this word. NIV translates it garbage. Let me show you how some other versions or translations of the Bible translate that word. King James, dung. American Standard, refuse. Common English, sewer trash. The message, dog dung, Wycliffe turds. Okay? There's a word that all these people are dancing around, isn't there? There's a word that all these translators know that should be there, and they don't want to say it. <laughs> Scubula. Scubula is what you say when you hit your thumb with a hammer, Right? <laughs> Scubula is what you pick up after your dog in the backyard. It's actually an offensive slang term for excrement. And that's what Paul says. I consider it all scubula compared to knowing Christ. Antioch youth, you taking good notes? Paul would say that the world's purest gold 
the best that life has to offer, all the things that we kill ourselves trying to achieve and accomplish in life, it's just a big pile of scubula compared to Jesus. That's how strongly not only he believes this, but he's experiencing it and longs for the church in Philippi to know the same thing. Now, how can Paul and Ignatius and all these other followers of Jesus throughout the years have this crazy commitment that only Jesus is life, that all that matters, all that's worth anything, all that's glorious is found in Christ alone? How is it possible to say to live Christ? Well, it's the second half of the verse, isn't it? To die is gain. To die is gain. So Paul Paul would say, yeah, life is Christ. It's the best. I know him. He knows me. I love him. He loves me. And death, that's even better. That's even better. And the rest of this passage that we read, Paul is kind of wrestling. And again, you might read it and go, ah, it seems a little unhealthy. (laughs) But he's trying to decide which would be better. Would it be better for me to stay here alive in the body and to serve Christ and to experience intimacy with him? Or would it be better for me to die and to go be with Christ? Now notice he doesn't talk about going to heaven when he dies. He talks about in here and other places, being present with Christ, being with Jesus in some way that we don't actually know what looks like. But he's confident that on the other side of this life, he will enter into the presence of Christ in a way that will fulfill all the deepest longings of his heart. And he's going, that sounds pretty good. To live as Christ, that's good. I'm all right, even in prison, even shipwrecked and abandoned and rejected, I have Christ, and that's all I need, but to die is even better. Now, from the very beginning of the Jesus movement, you've had followers of Jesus that have this, like, super casual attitude towards death. Like, they're not afraid of it. Paul's saying, yeah, death, that's not a big deal. Actually, it sounds pretty good. You have these martyrs early in church history that, and martyrs all the way up through today around the world that are facing death and saying, it's actually gain. I'm not afraid. How is that possible? And how is that actually even healthy, right? Athanasius, one of the earliest church fathers, had this brilliant analogy And he said, imagine that you see off in the distance some boys making fun of a lion. And they're kind of poking at it and crawling over it and throwing rocks at it. And he goes, what would you conclude is happening in that situation? Well, he says, the only way that would possibly make sense is if the lion's dead. There's no way little kids are going to play with a fully, fully alive lion. So if the lion's dead, then it makes sense that they wouldn't be afraid of it. And Athanasius goes, so how can we make sense of followers of Jesus that are making fun of death? Poking it with sticks, throwing rocks, and laughing at it. 
Well, he says, death itself must be dead. So two weeks ago, we celebrated Resurrection Sunday, the day that Jesus killed death. The day that Jesus overcame humanity's biggest enemy. The thing that we're all afraid of, the thing that we would consider among the worst things that could happen in our life, Jesus overcomes it victoriously, triumphantly, and is raised back to life. And the invitation of the gospel is that we will one day be raised in Christ as well. That death has lost its sting. The lion is dead. And as followers of Jesus, we look at that thing and we say, yeah, it used to be scary. It used to be the kind of thing that we would get all anxious and depressed and fearful about. But the lion's dead. Death has been defeated. It's no longer the end of the story. And as a result, Paul and Athanasius and probably millions of followers of Christ ever since have been able to look at this big, scary monster called death and say, it's dead. It's been overcome. And for us, it actually becomes a pathway into the very presence of Christ, the thing that our souls long for. So to live, that's Christ. To die, that's even better. And so Paul's going back and forth. I don't think he's suicidal. Some people think he is, like he wants to off himself in the slammer. I don't think that's what's going on. He's just wrestling, like which would be better? Sometimes it feels like it'd be better for me to leave. But then towards the end of the, the, the passage, he comes to the conclusion, yeah, of course it'd be awesome to go be with Jesus, but I think I'm going to stick around. Like I have this hunch, I have this sense that it's better for me to stick around. It's better for me to remain in the body. And here's the reason that he gives. Verse 24, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So here's one of the things that Jesus has done in Paul. He has reoriented Paul's heart and life around others. As a man who knows and loves the heart of Jesus, there's been a change in his identity where he now lives for others. He says the whole point of my, my life and existence in Christ is not just for me to enjoy Jesus, but for me to work for the joy and progress of those Jesus has called me to. The very identity that Paul's writing from is that of a servant. It's one of the other recurring themes throughout this letter. That Paul sees Jesus as the ultimate servant, which is a crazy paradigm shift to have a picture of God as a servant. The king of the universe washes feet. And Paul says, that's the God who is my life. That's the Christ whom I love and long for. And so his identity now is one who serves, one who gives his life away, one who is committed to spending his time and energy and his prayers 
for the joy and the progress of those God had called him to. And what Paul longs for when he says joy and progress in verse 25 is essentially that these Christians in Philippi would experience Christ in the same way that he is. That they too would be able to face disappointments and distractions and loss and receive it as grace from God. And that they would learn also that God lets things happen to us so that things can happen in us, so that things can happen through us. What Paul's experiencing is that the joy of Christ is completely asymmetrical from the circumstances of life. That even when things are really bad, he's saying life can be really good. As weird as that sounds. And he says, I want you to have that. So what keeps us from experiencing the same thing that Paul is here? From being able to authentically say that to live is Christ, to die is gain. Like if you were honest, can you say that with Paul this morning? If I'm honest, I'd have to say I have a hard time saying that about myself. There have been times and seasons, moments where that, that would be true for me. But on the whole, I'm not yet where Paul is. Meister Eckhart, 13th century mystic theologian, says this, that no cask holds two kinds of drink at the same time. If the cask is to hold wine, its water must first be poured out, leaving the cask empty and clean. If you are to have divine joy, all your creatures must first be poured out or thrown out. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying the reason we don't experience the kind of joy Paul has and is talking about is because we're clinging to so many other things instead of Jesus for it. We're promoting so many other things in our lives to that place of the thing that we think is going to give us meaning and purpose and joy. And he's saying, if you're filling your life, filling your heart, filling your mind with all this other stuff, and not necessarily bad stuff, but all the stuff that we think is most important, he's saying, well, you can't hold, you can't be full of two things at once. And what Paul found is that I need, that there's nothing so sweet as Jesus. There's nothing so fulfilling as knowing him and being with him and becoming like him. And until we get to the point where we say, Everything else is just scubula. Even the best stuff compared to gaining Christ, it's nothing. And so I'd ask us this morning to prayerfully, thoughtfully consider what are the things, the created things that we have promoted to the place that only Jesus can occupy in our lives. And are we willing to pronounce them scubula? Are we willing to forsake all for knowing Christ and making him known? And again, the purpose isn't just so that we can have like a good, you know, spiritual, warm, fuzzy life. The purpose of having these sorts of things accomplished in us 
is that God can accomplish his things through us as well. That we could serve as the church of Jesus, as this countercultural community in the center of a world that denies the lordship of Christ and we would stand and proclaim that Jesus is Lord and the rest is scubula, that Jesus is the king who fulfills our hearts and Jesus is the king who's filling the world with his glory and will one day raise the dead. What an incredible story we get to be part of. And Paul saw his place in this whole thing as a servant, to live as one who works for the joy and progress of others. And so let me ask you this question then. For whose joy and progress is Jesus calling you to work? Who is it that Christ is calling you to live as a servant for? Maybe it's somebody very, very close to you. And I would argue if you were married, you should start there. But the way we answer this question has the potential to be this beautiful explosion of the joy and glory of Jesus that actually can change the world. If we were to see the point of our lives to know Christ and to make him known, to work for the joy and progress of those around us, those who are in need of love, those who are in need of relationship, those who are in need of justice, and reconciliation, and peace, and mercy. If we were to leave here today with obedient and listening hearts towards Jesus, saying, who do you want me to serve today? How do you want me to wash the feet of those around me? At home, at work, in my neighborhood, or around the world. When we begin to empty ourselves, when we begin to own our identity as a servant and see ourselves existing for the joy and progress of others, like Jesus. That is when everything else starts to look like scubula. By taking our eyes off of ourselves and beginning to love and to serve with the humility and the obedience and the love of Christ. So I want us, in a moment of kind of prayerful imagination, will you close your eyes with me? We'll close with this. I want you to imagine that as you sit there in your seat this morning, Jesus himself walks up and taps you on the shoulder. And he says, come with me. There's someone I want to show you. There's someone who I want you to show my love to. There's someone in need of my joy my strength, my presence. And so you get up 
and you follow Jesus, where does he take you? Who does he show you? Lord Jesus, we trust that you are here in your very real presence. That as we've gathered in your name, submitting to your truth, to your love, to your story, that you are real and that you are true. And I would pray for your people this morning. God, would you give us hearts that long to know you and to listen to you and to obey you. Would you help us to see ourselves as those who have been served by you that we may become servants of all? And I pray, Lord Jesus, if in that little prayerful imagination exercise that if you genuinely spoke to any of us that we would not harden our hearts, that we would assume that the place where we imagined you leading us, we would assume that is your voice. Those people you've asked us to serve and to, to live among, to empty ourselves for, to love. Father, I pray that we would actually do that in obedience today. That we would begin, like Paul, to reorient our lives around this identity of servants. Jesus, we thank you that you are life and that death is even better that you have killed the lion and that you are the king of the world. Your kingdom is here and it is coming and you have snatched us out of the darkness and called us into the kingdom of light to be with you and to work with you in this world. We pray that by the power of your spirit this church community would become a shining light of your joy and hope in this city and around the world. You are the king who we love, who we trust. You're all that we want. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.